Hello everybody and welcome to the 141st edition of the Frank and Stan chat. And just so that to explain why I go Frank and Stan chat is because when uh, there is sort of the text underneath the screen, it comes out as Frankenstein chat. So that's the reason why I say Frank and Stan chat. Uh, for those of you watching on video, you'll see that we have a guest with us this week and that guest is Johnny Utley. Hello, Johnny. Hi, Frank. Hi, Stan. Yeah. Hi, Johnny. Thank you for joining us. I've uh, been trying to get you for a while. I'm yeah, glad you found the time to, to join us. Uh, so how are you, Stan? Uh, good, apart from we're in spring now, aren't we? So is that torrential rain now under the new <laughs> climate rules? Yeah, <laughs> that kept me awake last night. That's for sure, the rain that yeah. came last night and the wind. Um, but yeah, um, yeah. for those of you uh, looking at this, we're sort of like middle of March-ish, aren't we? And uh, it's... Uh, <laughs> It's not looking very sort of spring like, but anyway, um, there's been an awful lot going on. Um, some of it crazily, what appears to me to be crazily stupid, really, that something appears to be quite minor, but is sort of highlighting a number of issues. And we'll get round to talking about that uh, shortly. But Stan, let's go to you. Oh, well, let's go to Johnny first. Just uh, Johnny, can you just introduce yourself as to what you what you're about, where you are, what roles you've had, and what you're doing. Yeah, certainly. I'm, I'm, so I'm a, I always try and pass myself off as a history and politics teacher still, although my uh, my colleagues tell me I'm not allowed to do that. Um, <laughs> I've got one of those uh, unfortunate job titles. I'm CEO of a multi-academy trust, um, which doesn't always come with the best. Uh, I, I found that quite, I tried to find a different title. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, oh, I'm a director. And then a, a, a member of staff said, but you're not a director, Frank, because I was very keen. I'm not, I, haven't, I didn't have a voting right at the board. Now, I always felt that was quite important. Yeah. Have you come up with a, a better title? Have you been playing around with different titles? I tried, I tried different ones, but in the end, I think we've just stuck with that one. I mean, when my brother's a lawyer and when I, I got the job and I sent him a little business card saying, look, your brother's a CEO. And he said, you're still, that's great, but you're still a, I'll say idiot. He actually used a different word, but you're still a <laughs> Your family always keep you, keep you well grounded. But um, <laughs> we're, we're a trust of, of um, seven schools, soon to be nine, ten schools, um, and a skit we're based in. East Yorkshire, which is the kind of hidden, the hidden gem of Yorkshire. Um, I am actually a Lancastrian. I was born in Salford. Um, I'm from a, um, a red supporting family. Um, Perhaps that's so, how we get on then. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> right. There's a, there's a lot of us. Uh, when people well, I'm in Salford on. now, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so that's and and really, I mean, the trust. Um, I'm what we kind of describe as a second generation. CEO. So um, Chris Abbott, my predecessor, really did all the hard work setting the trust up and handed it over to me. I was really fortunate to take it on in, in good shape. And what we've really been able to do over the last four years is make everything about um, staff recruitment, retention and development. Everybody in our organisation from the trustees down recognises that the most effective intervention in the school is the quality of the teacher. Um, so everything is about a good teacher in every classroom um and we've done so we're, we're a million miles from perfect but we've done some really interesting stuff um around genuinely reducing workload and trying to develop a really healthy sustainable culture that people want to stay in and be developed in i've been interested in what what measures you've taken to try and reduce the workload it was something i i worked hard at um but failed to get it all across the line you know i think i was able to on school on academies that were sort of leaning towards that way i sort of I found it very easy going, but there were others that were a little bit didn't really want to shift, you know, because I think they felt they had a, a 
system that was delivering reasonable results you know mm. so what sort of measures have you undertaken johnny i mean we we we, we sat down originally we, we invited the unions in and said just put everything on the table that you want us to look at and genuinely the next meeting i went back and said is that actually all you want because the you know the checklists and things that are actually quite i don't think they particularly transform things what you need to do is transform the culture and i think the the power for us was when we we made the statement that we start from an assumption of professional trust because when we went through all the systems and processes that we had in schools, I had a very strong feeling that really they developed from a notion that 95% of teachers are slackers and lazy and you have to go and catch them out. Whereas if you actually flip it and go to the reality, which we all know, which is that 95% plus are coming in and doing a really good job every day, you actually can get rid of loads and loads of silly onerous stuff. So that's where, you know, that's how we got rid of Moxstead's graded monitoring evaluation book scrutiny by non-specialists a whole load of stuff um but we just keep it as a regular and a live conversation so i know there's a room 101 um <laughs> in, this, in this chat but we, we literally played room 101 we just got everybody to write down on post-it notes anything you think that takes time that doesn't improve student outcomes and we will look at every single one and then we'll either come back and say look you know the, here's the golden thread this is why it's important and if we can't find the golden thread then we'll get rid um, and that allowed us to get rid of a, you know, a huge number of things. And then the other bit is just, you know, sometimes we move with with academies, the sort of anti-academy view is, oh, but you can move away from national terms and conditions. And I always say, yeah, we can, but you can do that in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, for example, last year when there was a pay freeze, we gave a 2% pay rise to to staff because we could do it. So, so really just thinking all the time about what are the barriers, what gets in the way of a good teacher in every classroom, what makes people's lives hard and saying to leaders you're a servant leader you are there to remove barriers and the further up the organization you go the more people you serve it's as simple as that yeah yeah fantastic i I can remember when a record of achievement came into to primaries and and i actually labeled it in some schools the suitcase of achievement because they felt (laughs) they had to save every single thing a child had done even designing seats that kept all their work you know like on four four suitcases by the time they're in year six, they'll be sitting on them. <laughs> I used to say, you know, if a police officer can write a note in a book that says, actually, I saw this happen and yeah. somebody can go to jail as a result, I'm sure you can write in a notebook, this child can do this. And that should be efficient. Right. And it still it still goes on. I mean, I I know of a school last week where the, the primary school where the PE lead was told by you know, ahead from within the trust, you need to be videoing and providing video evidence of everything that kids can do to show to Ofsted and just nonsense. Uh, you just yeah. don't, you know, and I agree, you know, if, if the teacher says, you know, professional trust, if the teacher says I've observed them do that and they can do it, then they can do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's funny about the, the, um, the profile because uh, I'm, well, I, I we've t- spoken about uh, examinations on here quite a few times, and um, my my brother, who was a senior HMI in Wales, uh, it, when he got to room one hundred and one, said, "I'd go back to teacher assess stuff," which is what he was used to doing when he was a, an English secondary school teacher. I don't know when that was, but it was somewhere in in North Wales, and and actually, we're doing some work at the moment um, through sort of. The, just rethinking assessment and there is a, a, a uh, Rosie Clayton has developed a, 
uh, a profile, an online profile, and we're trying to get away from the idea of being a record of achievement, but it's more like a personal sort of diary sort of thing, just a, a summary statement. And we're trying to get businesses to, to consider using that for their performance management elements of their work so that we can see that we, if we could develop that and emphasize the importance of the teacher's assessment you know, of the, of the child, and that can then transfer into the workplace. It would be quite a smooth transition, you know, from one system into another. Um, so it's just interesting. As soon as you mention record of achievement, my mind goes to that's the fundamental flaw in the profile that we're developing because everybody goes back to that record of achievement, which was basically, you know, a, a good idea, I think. But, you know, as you I said, always go back to the first SATs in primary and where the teacher assessment and the test result are different the teacher assessment takes priority. Yeah. Where do, how did we lose that? Yeah. How did we lose that in, over the years? Yeah, my brother was also, wasn't he stressing, he's, um, he's not well at the moment, so that's why he's in my mind, um, that it actually, with that emphasis on teacher assessment, that actually it forces um, discussion between teachers across schools as well as to where that where the right grading sits, you know, um, so, but yeah, we'll see where we get with it all. Um, but yeah. Okay. Um, Stan, what's caught your eye this week? Well, what's caught my eye is nothing to do with education, but it's got something to do with language. And that's the, the sad death of, of Bill Tidy uh, yesterday. Now, some people might not know who Bill but Tidy Bill is. Bill Tidy was a, um, a cartoonist and a writer for the Daily Mirror and came up with... Um, a fantastic, oops, fantastic series of books called the Fosdyke Saga, which was about a family from uh, Yorkshire, I think, originally, that moved to Manchester. Uh, but his, his phrase, his use of language, which gave me something that I've always been able to judge men by, <laughs> in the very first character says, um, I only need a glance to judge a man. You can always trust a man that tucks his shirt into his underpants. <laughs> and I, if you use that as the way of going through life, and the other one, which which Johnny will, will understand now, is that there's in one series there's um, a fatal butterfly, a butterfly that can kill people, and it's known as the Salford Smoke Grey. <laughs> as the, the magnificent sulfur smoke grey with soot speckled wings and a deep throaty cough. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, yeah, R.I.P. Bill Tidy, who, who through through my early years, I think in secondary school, kept me going with the Daily Mirror cartoon every day. Yeah, yeah. Um... It's funny that the emphasis on cartoons is not quite as strong as it used to be. I don't know whether that's because when we were children, I, I'm, I'm putting you into that, Johnny, that <laughs> we bought sort of magazines and things like that, you know, um, and that sort of developed that sort of awareness of it. And of course, I think newspapers used to give great prominence to their cartoons, didn't they? You know, yeah. um, not quite in the same way now, um, but uh, but I, I've started picking up Private Eye and mm. uh, it, there is... Uh, it's it's rich there, I have to say. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, Johnny, what's caught your eye? Um, slightly, slightly less interesting, probably than uh, than stands, but um, Bridget Phillipson's speech at, at Askell at the weekend, um, and really the reaction to it, and how sad I think it is that that education continues to be this political football. So, you know, Bridget is clearly is is articulating 
the the consensus thinking from across the sector now there, there's there's no credible voice anymore that defends Ofsted in its current form um you know when Askell and Forum and CST um are all speaking out it's hardly the usual suspects and mm. what she's proposing is an eminently sensible um new iteration of Ofsted which reflects a much more mature education system but unfortunately as soon as um, a politician opens their mouth about education, then somebody else has to criticise. So you get into all this lazy, silly nonsense about being weak on standards and not on the side of parents and all the rest of it. And I think one of the, you know, one of the sad things about education in my time has been the way we've just been dragged from one side to another and actually sensible debate and discourse is is becoming increasingly difficult. So I think the, you know, for me, the proposals are absolutely sensible. They've clearly been widely consulted on and they would move us forward and provide much better information for parents, still hold schools accountable, but without that high stakes, toxic, destructive single measure, which we still persist with. Yeah. I mean, I find it amazing. Uh, somebody that reads a lot of Ofsted reports that anybody thinks that they're helpful for parents. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, if, if you say that, if somebody says that, then they actually haven't read any recently. Mm-hmm. You know, they may. It's they're not helpful for anybody because they're not a professional document either that says this is what you know this is what we found out about your school this is what you need to do next mm-hmm. i think that's the sad thing also is that the, the the reports ignore a lot of the issues that bridget would have been speaking about you know and whether that's about uh, i've yet to see reports talking about teacher recruitment mm-hmm. you know, um, or emphasizing the professionalism of staff have gone the extra mile during various lockdowns. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't read an Ofsted report talking about the crisis that exists around funding. I don't. I don't hear Ofsted reports talking about the problems that schools are having in securing governors. You know, uh, and, and and all of that. You know, I'm just not hearing about these sorts of things. Um, and, and so, in a way, <laughs> you think, well, how how can you possibly assess? the school when it doesn't well they don't even look at the finance do they um you know if you say say all that to to um to a business leader they're quite shocked you know because if you were going to look at the the health of a of a bank <laughs> like today there's a a tech bank uh, in the states has gone down you know the first thing you do is look at the balance sheet and see well you know how's it looking but Ofsted managed to judge effectiveness without looking at some of the most important issues um yeah uh, yeah we've, we've spoken a lot about Ofsted here haven't we I mean, from, there is the, I get the idea I do I think I, I've, I've written a paper quite recently suggesting that we need to do that safeguarding visit mm. um but for me I feel as though in order to do the inspection of a school properly you know, if it's not based on self-evaluation, if it's about looking at self-evaluation, then actually you can do it with quite a, a, a slim team. You mm. can test out one or two areas. You don't need to, you know, and that could be an indicator. You're just, you're not, you're not, you're inspecting using self-evaluation. But actually, if it's not based on self-evaluation, then you do need a massive team. You'd need to go back to the way that HMI used to inspect. You know, when, when, when I, well, before I joined the inspectorate, you know, where you'd go in with 50, secondary school with 15 or 20 colleagues, all subject experts, all of them roaming around the place. That's the way you get to it. So if you don't, are not willing to commit to that, then actually I think you know, you're on 
pretty dodgy ground, I think, in terms of making that judgment. So I, 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 I've gone back to looking at writing a letter or just saying I visited on Thursday, whatever, March, and, you know, uh, this is what I saw. You know, I think as a parent, I'd find that incredibly helpful. Um, not saying this happens every day, but it's, it shines a light on one day, one person's sort of visit to a school. It doesn't need to say, you know, uh, the, the teaching quality or the, the teaching was producing this or whatever. It's more of an observation, the sort of insight that a parent wouldn't, doesn't normally get um, from a school. I think I find that incredibly helpful. I'd ban anything in the report that can be fixed within a couple of days. Because <laughs> I've, I've seen schools threatened with going into a category because their um, central register isn't up to date or they haven't checked governors against mm. um, the barred list. Well, yeah, yeah, the, the, you know, it's an error, but it's fixed within, what, 20 minutes to mm. check your governors against a barred list. So done. Even if in the report it said we found this, but it was corrected, which I've seen some reports do, others threat, threaten, you know. And so you've got three years, maybe four years, where it still reads on your report that this is wrong when it was corrected within within 24 hours. I just mm. I just think they, they get into the minutiae of things and looking for reasons to find things wrong instead yeah. of celebrating. And yet the opening paragraph on nearly everyone I read sounds like the most idyllic school in, in the world. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I I found, I suppose I was big, I still am a fan of Ofsted, actually. I still think we need to have that sort of external sort of view. But actually, I think when I became a CEO and started seeing it for real, I really, it, it, my view of it turned very quickly. You know, it's as if I was in a bubble of inspection and thinking that it was being done much better than it actually was. <clears throat> and so I, I found it very difficult to to hold back when I came out of the inspectorate. I mean, how does that work for you, Johnny? I mean, is it critically important? I mean, how do you feel when you get inspected in one of your, your academies? The, 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 sad, the sad thing f for me is that we've the the last few that we've had the conversations that we've had with inspectors have been really rich really helpful really useful um but the number of times that they'll say things and say but of course this won't make it into the report um so i'm not i'm not critical of the people who are going in um and doing the work we had one last year um where the lead was was as insightful mm. um and sharp as you could ever wish for but was also very very supportive and you know was on the side of the school and it was a really positive experience um but the report that came out at the end was utterly meaningless <laughs> um and i think as well you know that some of the i think some of the frustration comes from that there are emerging issues in the system which Ofsted isn't equipped to look at so for example if I was going into a school, that one of the first things I'd want to know is what what proportion of your catchment pupils actually come to your school, yeah. um, and look at um, profiles of SEN in relation to schools around, because we're still in a situation where schools can get an outstanding, um, but they've shipped great loads of SEND kids out. Yeah. Um, and they've ended up in the magnet school down the road. One of ours is a famous magnet school, and we're very, very proud of it. It has 
double the national average of EHCPs, and they all come from um, out of catchment. And, the, you know, these are pressing issues in the system that need addressing, um, and Ofsted's getting nowhere near them. Mm. And that's the sad thing for me, really. Not It's not about the, the people who go in. I think the, the vast majority of inspectors who go into schools have a, you know, a commitment to trying to do the right thing. But I think that they are hamstrung by a, a framework that's just not fit for purpose. Yeah. I mean, I, I I won't reveal the the trust or the individual, but a CEO said to me when we took over a new school that that was bad news for his trust because it, he had confidence that we might be able to address the weaknesses, perceived weaknesses in that school, mm-hmm. and and actually that would dry up his intake. Mm-hmm. And it, it it was in effect, I thought it was it was that sort of discussion about perhaps. This is sort of thing that because I'm relatively new to the game. This is sort of thing that CEOs talk about. <laughs> you know, mm. I was genuinely shocked. You know, by that, I was quite pleased in some respect that we might be able to rebalance things. But actually, the longer I thought about it, and the more I've seen about that particular trust, the more I realise that yeah, this is a bit of a pattern emerging here. You know, um, so yeah. Again, got... if, you, if you take it back to Ofsted grades as well, so I think you know one of the things that. The, the sad things in the system is anything that encourages school leaders to compete with each other and do each other down is bad for the system and it's bad for children. And by definition, if you've got four grades and your career and your mortgage depend on getting two of the four at the top, um, and there are things levers that you can pull that affect the school down the road, then there's still the incentive to do it. And yeah. ethical school leaders who don't want to do that stuff make their own lives harder um and again i think that's something that when you look at accountability when you look at ofsted it's something we have to take into account we're a much more mature system you know when when the day after um ofsted was shut down for the pandemic and we got rid of league tables what happened the next day school leaders didn't sit back and go oh brilliant we've yeah. got no accountability let's go and have a coffee they worked harder than ever and they collaborated more than ever i agree yeah Absolutely, it's a much healthier. Now, the offset report should be a letter, as Frank said, for general release and a professional document that mm-hmm. goes to the school with some, of, as you say, some of the incisive things that weren't going to get into the report because maybe they're not quite on the framework. Maybe it's more a feeling than, than something like an evidence, but that could go into a professional document to schools, mm-hmm. which could be open to parents if they wanted to read it but written in a professional language for professionals to understand. You're right, Stan. Every final meeting I've ever been in, we all furiously write reams and reams of notes <laughs> because that's the useful bit. The stuff that won't make it into the report is the stuff that we need and we're not given it, so we just end up going through our own <laughs> writing. I do like the idea of the profile, though. I mean, I, I, mm. I know that some of you have been involved in that. I've not directly been involved in developing thinking around the profile. Um, but it, it was something that when I was in Ofsted uh, with Mike Claddingbowl, we I remember being stuck in a lift, believe it or not, in Ofsted, and we talked about the the benefits of something like that that would allow an algorithm to be constructed by a parent, so that they could actually look at that sort of scorecard and say, well, this suit, you know, I, I it, particularly because I think Mike was keen on it as well, this idea of that HMI visit, you know, uh, uh, just a one day thing and a report of what a day in the life sort of thing 
but there will be some parents who'd be really committed that that's really telling me the true story of the school and that and they would go to that others would be more concerned as you were saying about you know the number of special educational needs students there are there you know the attendance and all that sort of stuff but it allowed parents mm. to sort of just construct their in what they consider to be important and to um to make that the reason but i have to say i still feel committed to community schools mm. you know there's still this thing here even though we've got the scorecard there's still something here and we have it around where i live there are a number of schools playing off against each other you know they're all fighting you know that that day last week or whenever it was when everyone found out their school place you know i mean it it feels as though it's a it's still very much in favor of those that have got the money you know mm. they're going to get mm. themselves into the catchment area of the best schools. so unless we somehow break that we're you know in a way this feels like we're a bit around the edges some of this that still needs to be a, a key element i think yeah, I think there's a, there's a it surprised me when when we did well as a as a primary school, um, and the chair of governors was saying, right, we've got to you know blow the trumpets, we've got to get this in the press, and I was sort of saying, whoa, 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 just you know, next year we could be one of the schools that are struggling because it's you know it's it's not as consistent as you think, and his answer was, well, if it, if this might be our only year of celebrating, we better make the most of it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. And then I had parents, uh, parent governors, who were saying this is fantastic because you know we've chosen to bring our children here, and we want to celebrate with our friends whose children don't come here that we made the right choice. And I thought, yeah. God, it's it's it is it's a whole culture way beyond mm. where you think in in your if you like in your bubble in the school mm. you think mm. it's controllable. It's it's not. No. <laughs> Well, I, what's caught my eye this week then is uh, <laughs> this is the Gary Lineker weekend um, when the uh, BBC um, asked Gary Lineker to step back from um, doing his TV work and lots of other football sports commentators did the same in supporting him um, because he spoke out about uh, a government's a bill that's going through around uh, uh, what they deem it to be, um, although I don't, but I think they call it illegal migration. But um, but anyway, the the issue is that's I think sparked quite a bit of this stuff around um, uh, impartiality, and teachers have to deal with this impartiality. I mean, in your subject, Johnny, mm. I mean. You know, impartiality is at the heart of a good history teacher, at the heart of a good politics teacher, at the heart of a good philosophy teacher. You know, all of these, this is something they deal with on a daily basis, you know. Um, but there's something happening recently where a very senior, or I wouldn't even say senior, but sort of high profile uh, colleague has put out that, um, you know, there is a uh, an RSE issue in our schools. And I think that was promoted by a conservative MP in Parliament and uh, I have to say, I mean, bearing in mind, we, we, we have so much inspection going on. It's amazing that this big problem that's happening everywhere has not been picked up by a single Ofsted inspector recently. You know, I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? Um, no one's spoken to them about that being a problem, um, but it appears to have been a problem. And uh, I think it is quite sort of concerning that uh, that these sorts of single item issues you know, can blow up so quickly and really they ought to be just dampened rather than amplified, you know, because actually it's not an issue. 
But this colleague has said, oh, hundreds and, well, I don't know, it's hundreds, I think you said before, Stan, of mm. people have emailed this colleague to say, oh, yeah, it's going on in our school. Um, and actually, the key issue there, if it's going on in your school, why the hell are you sending an email to somebody you don't know? <laughs> you know when you actually you should be telling your head teacher, you should be telling your head of department, you should be telling your chair of governor, you should be telling your lado what's going on if it's that bad. You know, I mean, in effect, I feel like saying to that colleague, well, release all the emails. You know, because yeah. actually they're, they're acting unprofessionally, sharing that information with you without having shared it through the, the appropriate channels if it is going on. And, you know, who knows? You know, but actually it's this, this sort of this issue. And it's taken the, the light away, I think, in some respects from all of this, the Gary Lineker, the RSC stuff, all of that's taken the, the, the light away from the reason, you know, that, that bill last week and how, you know, in my view, how disgraceful it is. Um, yeah, there is a problem, but actually we haven't got a, we, we haven't got a system in this country for dealing with it. We're trying to sort of deal with it by stopping people coming when we need to actually have a system like everybody else that actually manages the process better. You know? Both of you are CEOs or ex-CEOs. How many times have you had to deal with something that potentially could blow up, but you deal with it by by talking it through and thinking it through before <laughs> you allow it to explode? I mean, you know, I know you talked earlier, Frank, about, about crisis management, but it's about managing it before well, it's a crisis. I have to say, I saw it done really well. Uh, um, I, I've seen it done really well in the co-op, I have to say, because where, where I was fortunate to work on the same floor as the social media team, the press team, all of that. I, I learned an incredible amount. But there was a, a, I think it was in Bradford, a secondary head in Bradford um, had something blew up where there was a teacher who apparently taught something in an RE lesson that the some members of the community found offensive. And it, and it actually blew up very quickly. And he managed that by going to the gate. He spoke very clearly about what he was going to do and how he was going to get to the bottom of it. And you know what? It was so reassuring. The story drifted away. Mm. You know, and actually for me, because it's interesting we raise this, that today is the year of the day to this day when P&O sacked those 700 odd employees. And the Mm. government said they were going to do something about that. And nothing's been done about it, you know, but actually what they did, the government did, is they actually allowed this then to to sort of make it look as though they were going to do something about it, but never did. It was as if when you're in government, the issue, there's just a load of issues coming. So you get swamped by that. When you're the head in Bradford and you've got one issue, that's your main issue. You've got to resolve it Mm. because they're never going to let you forget it. He has resolved it. He resolved it very quickly. And actually, I think here the government don't resolve things. They just allow other things to swamp the agenda. And then it drifts away. You know, those 700 odd people were sacked illegally and the and the company knew it was illegal that they were sacking them and they still did it. Mm-hmm. And that's run by the same company that is, is it DWP? No, not, not DWP, but they, they sponsor the, uh, the golf, uh, the world golf tournament. This is not a company. The, you know, the, the company that that actually runs that P&O ferries is a very, very profitable company. Mm. You know, it's just that that arm of that company was not profitable. You know, so in a way, for me, it's all around, you know, uh, what's the right thing to do? Mm. You know, how to manage it, be clear and upfront. You know, we've not heard any, you know, we've heard the, 
Oh, uh, Tim Davy, the uh, BBC Director General, has been trying to front it up. But, it, you know, uh, I, I find all of this quite remarkable that it took me quite, well, I was in my early 30s when I got my first headship. Tim Davy was vice president of Pepsi, marketing and finance at the age of 26. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, and he only had two years in the company before that. Now, I, I'm not suggesting that Tim Davy knew somebody, but that is, at times, your rise through the ranks can be so rapid that actually it leaves you very vulnerable further down the line because actually you've not done the hard graft that actually you need in order to manage some of these sort of sparky issues that happen. So for me, it's around, there's some lessons here about, um, you know, progression towards leadership, about, you know, that progression if it if it actually is rooted in a number of situations you think oh well, my career's going nowhere well it is going somewhere because actually it's it's building it's blocking it's bolting things onto you that you don't realize it's bolting onto you so that when you do come up with a, an issue you know which is really high profile you've got the skill set and the experience and the confidence to be able to manage it um, and well yeah. done to the Bradford head. I can't remember his name, but I, th I think it's in Keithley. Yeah. Well done, that man, because he he fronted it up much better than the BBC are. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. I mean, I th there's so much of what you said there, Frank. That, that thing about about honest communication. I think you know, in schools, we have become so fearful of of risk and reputational risk. Um, and again, going back to the kind of corporatization competition of education about protecting that image that it's it made it more difficult for leaders to be really honest in situations and actually that that open honesty is is key um you know i remember it's slightly different example but early in the pandemic and we were communicating a lot with parents we communicated in a very different way it was a very very personal honest open way i wrote a letter one day saying we actually don't know what to do yet but rest assured we will in 24 hours you know <laughs> um and when everybody was fussing about the key worker list at the start and people were getting themselves into all sorts of pickles about bringing id and all the rest of it and we just wrote and said look at the list if you genuinely think it's you send your child we'll look after them and we'll go from there um and it was just that you know i think and it's, in some ways it's easier to see i talk to my heads a lot it's when when you get a complaint in a school it feels very very personal as a head it did when i was ahead it felt it just got you right in the core especially if it came on a saturday morning um whereas for ceo you've got a bit of distance and you're able to be that more of that firewall it's less personal when something happens in a school and i think it's important that we you know we protect heads in that role yeah. i was going to say that relationship between your heads and you, and you needs needs that gap but the, and also needs that trust so that yeah. if they are about to explode and say you know this is what happened this is what's happened and you can go well just just give it a minute let me let you know let's talk mm -hmm. it through i i used to have um an advisor who i'm sorry it was a governor who was an advisor in another authority and he was great because i especially writing a letter back to a parent who viciously complained i would say what do you think of this and he'd go that's a really good letter, Stan. Really good. Now tear it up and put it in the bin because you can't send it. <laughs> Instead, just put this. And that was great advice for me at the time. I was a young head. And mm. it was just that buying that that day, 24 hours of time, 
just to, to get the emotion out of it and to think, well, what actually is this complaint really about? Mm. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, uh, it's been a funny old week. Um, so, Johnny. What, what's made me laugh, though, just to finish on that, yeah. is some MPs now writing how um, they enjoyed the episode oh. of um, <laughs> Match of the Day. You know, like everybody watching no commentary or analysis yeah. episode. I hope it's a good episode tonight on Match yeah. of the Day. You know, clearly people who've never watched it mm-hmm. don't understand football have written how how wonderful it was. Yeah. Yeah. Um okay, well, Johnny, we, we always end up with uh, you know, if you had something you could do that, you know, you'd either put into room 101 or you'd want to change in education what would it be so we don't know what johnny atley is going to say now so what is it um i'm, I'm toying between so many things here um the, something that we put in our own room 101 was performance related pay and three target performance management um but what i would put in room 101 um is uh, uh, performance measures that lack context so uh... right, Progress eight oh. without, without yeah. context. Can I just say I did not know he was going to say that. Yeah. Well, did. the Northern Powerhouse report from from January this year absolutely debunks the notion that there's any sensible national comparison. And, and I go back again. If you look at if you look at Progress eight in its current form, teachers in Yorkshire are less effective than teachers in London. But that's like saying that GPs in Blackpool are less effective than GPs in Westminster because life expectancy is lower in yes. in Blackpool and Westminster. It's a nonsense, and it's actually really, really damaging. And in York, I mean, just finally, you know, in Yorkshire at the moment, we are told constantly we're the second lowest performing um, region in the country. But if you actually put context in and you look at long-term disadvantage, white working class, it's the second highest performing region in the country. Yeah. So in Yorkshire do a really, really good job. Well, yeah, I, I'm all, all for that. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I go back to that uh, report that uh, we did, uh, Northern Powers Partnership did with George Leckie, Dr. George Leckie at Bristol University, mm. where he, he recreated a sort of contextual value-added measure. And one of the schools in Yorkshire became the the, the highest-performing school in terms of progress that, you, you know, you'd want to send your child there. Um, it only won that because the school in Cheshire which actually beat it was closed because it was viewed as not performing well. You know, right. so, you know I mean, and actually people say, well, you know, what's all this about? Well, actually it is at the end of the day, a community has now lost its school because mm-hmm. of a poor yeah. system that's being used to assess how effective schools are. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Well, great chat. Thank you very much, Johnny. Um, really yeah, lovely. Uh, and and just uh, what's the name of your trust, by the way? Uh, it's it's really boring name. It's called the Education Alliance, um, but teal teal for short, and the colours teal. teal. So, all right, <laughs> that's the only clever. That's the only clever bit about it. And also, all all the work you're doing on. I mean, how, how difficult is recruitment at the moment? I mean, are you standing out as a, a bit of an outlier because of the sort of commitment to workload and and your we, principles yeah, and things? We, yeah, we are. We we've got a skit, and we've we we and I hate I, I say this, and then people want to kill me. We're the only place I know that's overstaffed in maths and science at the moment because of the the flow through from the skit. But no, we've we've seen a, a since we did the kind of reculturing of the trust, we've seen a twenty percent increase in applications. We've seen a twenty five percent decrease in um, in levers. 
And I think the crucial one for us, the most important one, is that nationally two-year retention in the profession is 80%. Um, and at the moment with us, it's 98%. Um, so always say we are far from perfect. There's loads of things that we need to do better. But in those terms, we're having some some real success. Fabulous. Well, that's a really positive so, ending, isn't it? Culture, again, Frank. Sure, it is, yeah. And, and, and principles, though. You know, values and principles about what's the most important thing and going what, back to how do, you, how do you treat people. What kind of school do we want to be? And mm-hmm. how can we get there? Yeah. Those are the key questions. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, well, uh, we're back on Friday with a, uh, another Frankenstein chat. We have... Uh, we're going into tutoring uh, on Friday. So uh, Anne Morris is coming back, uh, who's been a guest with us before. So uh, look forward to her joining. And, and uh, Johnny, we'd love to have you back. So I get some dates in the diary for either later in the year or early next year, because it does look as though we're going to be running. If our health holds up, Stan, I think we'll be running with you for a little bit longer. Anyway, uh, thank you all, everybody. And we'll see you all soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.